Ethan, does the SAT really matter? Do you care? I think so, yeah. I'm working on mine so I can uh, get a high score, look good to college admissions. So you, you believe the myth then that colleges really do care about your SAT score? I think colleges use the SAT score as a sorting mechanism. So maybe it's not so much a reflection on the student themselves, but their, their basic ability to handle certain types of problems. Sorting mechanism, like the hat in Hogwarts, Gryffindor, Slytherin, good person, bad person, is that really how the SAT goes? I think of it more as like a college degree as a sorting mechanism for employers at a job. Oh, so where you go to college might have something to do with where you end up working and maybe part of your salary potential? Yes, I think so. So when we're looking at the question of college admissions, then we've really got some pretty important and pretty economically valuable issues at stake. For certain, yeah. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to What's the Res, an ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring. I'm joined today by my co-host, Ethan Delves. And today we are going to be doing a special bonus episode on a journal article, I'm sorry, an article from the Wall Street Journal this morning entitled, SAT to give students adversity score to capture social and economic background. Uh, that article is by Douglas Belkin, and it was posted on May 16th, 2019. Ethan, what do you think about this article? I'm so excited for this episode, honestly. Originally, we were going to do a different topic for our episode, but then Mr. Bonin handed us this article, and I went straight to Josh and said we absolutely have to change the topic for recording this afternoon. Yeah, this is essential. Uh, yeah, that's right. I wasn't originally thinking of this. We were going to do our public forum nationals resolution, which I guess we'll get to next week We'll now. get to that, yeah. But this article is crazy. I mean, when I, when I first saw this this morning, it says, so the, the title of the article is SAT to give students adversity score to capture social and economic background. This was, I don't know, I just saw this and it provoked a lot of thought from different kinds of questions as far as discrimination goes in, the, in college admissions or who's being discriminated against and if someone is being discriminated against, what's the best way to counteract that? And that's, I mean, already going into the topic, but it's, it's a broad topic and I think this is gonna affect the way that I go to college or that I'm trying to get into college because originally I've been working on my SAT score, but now there's also an adversity score that I have to worry about and I have no control over that's gonna affect my college admissions process for the next SAT. So this is gonna be affecting me right away pretty much. Well, and certainly according to the Wall Street Journal, you are in the first year where this will be a widely used metric for determining college application status. My generation gets a lot of the firsts, I feel like. <laughs> what do you think? Well, I think every generation feels that way. Yeah, I'm sure every generation does feel that way. Uh, but the, uh, the third paragraph in this article explains that 50 colleges used the score last year as part of a beta test. The college board plans to expand it to 150 institutions in the fall of 2019 and then use it broadly the following year. So that'll be in 2020, 2021, which will be your senior year. The same year you're applying for colleges is where at least, according to the Wall Street Journal, this will be pretty yeah, widespread. This is going to be interesting for sure. Well, Ethan, just in case any of our listeners have missed this, um, help them out. What exactly? is an adversity score. An adversity score is a policy that was recently implemented by the College Board, which oversees all SAT and ACT testing. And the, this is a score that's in addition to your SAT and ACT score, but it's not a score based on merit. It's a score based on socioeconomic status. And the way they determine your number for this score is by using 15 different factors that we'll get to in this episode. And what it does is it tries to determine how difficult your upbringing was or how difficult it was for you to get where you are. And they do this by quantifying diff um, different socioeconomic patterns that you fall into. Like, I think a couple of them were maybe income, you know, 
whether or not your parents are uh, separated or divorced or together, well, a lot of different things like that. Two of them that the Wall Street Journal cites are the crime rate and the poverty level from the students' high school and neighborhood. I know we found some of those other factors earlier, but it's probably worth mentioning. I probably should have told you this before the show. But some of those things we were looking at earlier, I'm not confident that those are, in fact, the ones that go into this number. So they haven't, they haven't named all of them? They've what not. Okay. The, what, what one of our debaters, Megan Bagwell, found today as we were discussing this, because this was a very... This has been a very hot topic around the school today. Uh, she found a, an old PowerPoint that the College Board presented at a conference back in 2018, and it listed these factors. And we read that initially and thought, oh, we found the 15 factors. But I'm not sure those are the 15, because later on in this uh, journal article, uh, this is on page 4, the College Board, quote, declined to say how it calculates the adversity score or weighs the factors that go into it, end quote. So maybe oh, it's no. those ones you were mentioning, but we have two that the journal at least states clearly, the crime rate and the poverty levels from your high school and neighborhood, but the other 13 are an unknown. I mean, well, first of all, shout out to Megan Bagwell because she's an amazing researcher and I doubt we would have ever found this uh, first stepping stone to go off of without her. So thank you, Megan. Here, here. And the, I don't know because if we don't even know the factors we're being assessed on, and here's another crazy thing, you don't get to know what your advers adversity score is. So once they've taken, what, where the data come from? The U.S. Census Bureau, as we that's said? that's certainly part of it. Somewhere right. in this article, it talks about one of the places that the College Board has said they're drawing from is the census data, which is updated every ten years. So we're oh, coming up on man. one of those years in 2020. This is, and I, I bet that's an, an intended pattern too to get the most recent census data so that you could admit these people. What do you think? Well, I think that's I think that's likely. It's certainly the it's the clearest and greatest pool of data about the American population. But the problem with those numbers is that a lot can change in between a Census Bureau worker coming to a house and finding out how many people live there and eight years later when maybe someone who lives in that house now applies and perhaps whatever algorithm is used to generate this number is drawing on eight data from eight years ago. A lot can change in eight years. And that data is updated on so 2000, 2010, 2020, 2030. So a lot might change for a student applying, say, in 2029, using data that was all collated from these surveys taken in 2020. So can you sum up the goal of the adversity score in, in one sentence? Would you be able to do that for us? Well, do you mean the goal as the College Board is articulating it or the goal that I think is really at play? As the College Board is articulating, just so we have somewhere to go off of. Uh, that's fair. Well, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. I think the goal that they've stated and that several other people in this article are quoted as saying is really to increase access to college to people from a different socioeconomic backgrounds and people who might not test as well on the SAT. And I think a couple of things just to look out for as we're going through this episode is I know in debate cases or when we're analyzing a resolution, when I was at the Calvin Coolidge Foundation for my first nationals tournament, I met one of the really good debaters there and they said that the first thing they do when they look at resolutions is look at all the assumptions that the resolution is making. I think a really interesting thing to do with this article and this policy as a whole would be to look at the assumptions that this program is operating off of and assess the validity of this program based on those assumptions of whether or not they're true or false or would stand when you're put next to what's real and reality or if they wouldn't. What do you think? 
I think that's an excellent way to go, and it's going to help us to really get into the heart of this new idea because we can't just look at what it says on the surface and take it at face value. Instead, we really need to get beneath this and see what's it really about and what are those assumptions are going to get us much closer to the essence of the idea. So you were talking about the actual goal earlier. What do you think the actual goal of the uh, College Board Diversity Score program would be? Well, uh, I, I want to tie this as closely to the Wall Street Journal article as possible. Yeah, this, they, this is pretty much all we have to go off of as of now. Well, and certainly over the course of today, since this story broke at 5.30 a.m. Eastern Time, so that's 11 hours, there have been possibly, uh, I've seen about a dozen other news sources yep. that have come out with similar stories. New most York of Times them has one too, just now. Okay, good. And most of those are based on what the, the story that the Wall Street Journal broke. So... Uh, that being said, there's a quote very uh, deeper in the article that caught my eye. Uh, this is from... There's so many good ones. In there, there are. There really are. Uh, this is from Anthony Carvale, director of Georgetown University's Center on Education and the Workforce. He describes this uh, program as the following, quote, The purpose is to get to race without using race. Hmm. Because what's uh, the, in the context of the article, this is describing how uh, the Supreme Court has been has consistently ruled against colleges using a principle, the principle of affirmative action, to admit people based on their race, and that's judged as being wrong, as being unjust. It's a it's a form of reverse racism or discrimination in favor of particular ethnic minorities. Well. The College Board is interested in finding a way to get there despite these different legislative and judicial barriers. So this is then part of the goal of this is to create a workaround so that colleges can use the principles of affirmative action in their admissions processes while saying that it is not about race or ethnicity or about your socioeconomic background. But at the same time, here is a brand new metric that truly focuses on those parts of, uh, of, of a person's education and says that they are of an equal value and maybe even more important than their actual academic performance. And do you expect similar consequences to affirmative action? Do you think it'll play out the same way? I think so. I mean, one of the problems that affirmative action results in is that it ends up looking less at someone's actual qualifications for a position and more at parts of their background and says, okay, because we need this percentage of people from this ethnicity, instead of looking for the most qualified individuals who could hold a position, we look for the most qualified individuals within that ethnic group. And someone referred to this, was it, I don't know if it was Belkin who wrote this article, as the death of merit. Who did you say? You said, that, you said, you said that earlier. That's a great phrase. I don't think that was me. I, that might have been Mr. Bonin. I don't know. Somebody Possibly today has Mr. said Bonin. that. Yeah. Uh, I think that's what we have going on uh, is a, I think we have a, this, this policy ultimately is going to be a kind of reverse discrimination, which strikes me as a terrible policy. Well, I mean, this is a crazy workaround because, I mean, this what it is, as far as I can tell from the information that we've been given so far from the Wall Street Journal, that this is quite the workaround. I mean, it's a national policy, a standardized policy, because remember, College Board has rights to all of the SAT tests, and they're the ones administering these tests, so you can't get around it now. But... Um, this is like this is a really dense policy. You know, there's 15 different factors, and you have to use U.S. Census Bureau data to categorize these people into certain groups. And this scale, do you remember what the scale was? My article is from zero to 100. That's it. So how, how in the world do you quantify a human being based on 15 metrics from zero to 100? And how and how do you quantify some of these things that are like, say, owning a house? 
was one of them, right? Even though we're not sure exactly what the 15 are. Right. How do you quantify just how nice that house is from zero to 100? Well, and, and in that case, you would I, I suspect what will end up happening is that those who own homes are considered to have less adverse situations, or particularly if your parents own a home, because obviously right. the 16, 17, 18-year-olds who are applying to college, the vast majority of them don't yet own their own property. And if they did, they'd have a pretty bad adversity score. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. Even though they might have demonstrated a lot of financial success and responsibility. But... Uh, so if your parents own a home, well, that's going to be looked at as less adverse than if your parents rent. If you live in a well-to-do area, that's going to be less adverse. If you go to a high school, like in, in your case, going to a private school, I suspect, is going to be far less adverse than someone who goes to, say, an inner-city public school. So it seems that the more, so the more adversity you have, the higher it goes. It's not, as you said earlier, it's not golf. The higher your adversity score, the better. The more disadvantaged you are in all of these 15 different metrics add up into your adversity score, and this will be used to assist you into getting into college in favor of those with more adversity. And I think you, I think there was a phrase used in this article later on about the official name for this metric, I'm going to look for it. It was the overall disadvantage level. So on your dashboard, actually, no, not your dashboard, College Board's dashboard, because you don't get to see your adversity score. That's right. This the, college the, admissions the college admissions officer gets to see this dashboard and all the information that the College Board has somehow accessed. And again, we don't really know where this information is coming from. Maybe it's the Census Bureau. Maybe it's the IRS data that is gathered in the tax process. Maybe it's some advertising agency that the College Board has contracted with to judge all of, the, the, all of this information. We just don't know. And quick question. Uh, if I'm, tell me if I'm wrong. Is Census Bureau data collected partially by surveys? Yes. Is it like for the religious part, right? You have to fill out a survey? To... Well... Uh, it, it, it's funny, um, and this is just coming up, so uh, as an okay. a idea for you or for any of our listeners, uh, I think you may have to be 18 to take advantage of this, but a great part-time job that pays, last time I looked at this, between $19 and $21 an hour is being a Census Bureau survey administrator, because what the U.S. Census Bureau does is they send people to homes. And the, the Census Bureau worker has to then find out how many people live in this home. And now here's the trick. They're going to ask you a ton of questions. Now, the way this was at least explained to me by uh, one of my favorite college professors was that the one thing they must ask you, and you do legally have to answer them, is how many people live there. And, hmm. But the trick is... They have a thousand questions they would like to ask you. They want to collect uh, as much information on you as possible. And all of that is theoretically being used, according to the U.S. Constitution, to determine how many people determine the population numbers so that they can then appropriately divvy up congressional seats. And people lie on surveys sometimes. Uh, they right? do. And I, would they have a higher incentive to lie if it would help you get into college, perhaps? Oh, my goodness. Just maybe. Um, I have one funny story about that, if, if, if yeah. we've got time. Um, so this is that same professor who, uh, he was, the professor is Caucasian, and he explained to us one day in class that he was actually one quarter African American. Does he write African American on his Census Bureau? See, he didn't. Okay. Now, this professor, uh, had, he told us that uh, he had a grandpa who hated the U.S. federal government, just hated the government, hated bureaucracy. So this is sometime in the 1950s, and now... The grandpa in this story is just as Caucasian as my professor. You would never look at him and think, wow, you are partially African-American. Nope, looks straight up Caucasian. Well, the grandpa hates 
The U.S. Census Bureau hates the fact that he is obligated to this. So the bureau worker comes and says, well, Mr. So-and-so, I have a bunch of questions for you. And the guy, sa and the guy starts slamming the door in the Census Bureau worker's face. Oh, man. At which point the guy says, no, no, really, sir, I just need one question. It's just one. The guy says, all right, what is it? How many people live here and what ethnicity are you? That's two questions. But it was a compound, so right, the guy, and the guy said, there's four of us and we're black. So as far as the U.S. Census Bureau is concerned, my professor is now one quarter African-American because his grandpa lied on the survey. Wow. Way to go, grandpa. Yep. Yep. <laughs> but I think you're absolutely right. Uh, people do lie on surveys. That happens all the time. Uh, I have no idea how the U.S. Census Bureau compensates for that, but I'm sure they do in some way. But now the, the, all of this really has to do with a way of changing the, the view of the SAT. Right. Um, and Ethan, all day I've been asking students what they think of this, because this strikes me a certain way, and I've been really curious to hear what students think. Um, is there something about this adversity score that strikes you as very unjust? I think this adversity score is unjust. And my perspective on it is this. I do not deny that there, there's discrimination and that people do have a harder time in their up, upbringing. And some of this is likely due to different socioeconomic factors or those factors could be a reflection or an indication that something could have been more difficult in that student's life. And I also think that discrimination does exist. And it, although according to this um, adversity score program, it's very easy to pinpoint where. Um, and I don't think it's that easy to pinpoint where. So, and there's also one more thing. I see this as kind of a, a situation where there's reverse racism going on, perhaps, where there's discrimination in one area, and this is an attempt to, to fix that discrimination, but instead of actively fixing that discrimination in that area, instead it places discrimination on the opposite end of the spectrum. And I don't think that two wrongs make a right. I don't think that placing discrimination in a different place solves discrimination or makes it any better. Um, and I'm not, I don't, I'm not saying I have a solution to where we could pinpoint this without throwing it on the other side or just throwing around discrimination in different places. But I think this is an unjust system because there is discrimination and this is not the way to solve it. And placing discrimination in different areas does not solve the problem. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think I said the word discrimination like at least 50 times in the past <laughs> minute. Well, well maybe, uh, maybe some of our listeners will uh, decide to make a bingo card out of, out of our, our shows and just see if maybe we say the same things all the time. I, I have no idea. I would not be surprised if some of them are doing that. Um, if, if so, listeners, please do uh, take a photo and uh, email us uh, a bingo card from our shows at whatstheres at gmail.com. Please, we'll play some bingo. Now, as you were saying that, it reminded me of one of my favorite movies from uh, high school days. I had a, uh, my high school Algebra 1 teacher required us to watch a certain uh, movie. It's called Stand and Deliver. And it's about poor kids in the barrio in Southern California who really, uh, they, they have a great teacher at a really bad school. And this great teacher turns out to be a calculus teacher. And he teaches them calculus and suddenly they just love calculus. And by the end of the movie, they take an exam and show demonstrate proficiency in calculus, and that becomes their entry ticket into college and out of their certain their uh, current socioeconomic status. Okay. What strikes me as really interesting is that for them, for that story to work, and it's it's based on a true story. There was an actual teacher who taught calculus, and it helped these kids do really well. For that story to really work, it depends on. Uh, it really turns on this being an actual accomplishment. I, I can like smell the merit in that situation. You know what I mean? It's, yes. it's, so, it's like saturated. 
Oh, and it means that these students made choices. They made choices to study calculus when other people did not. They made choices to prepare for an exam when other people did not. And because they made these choices that were available to them, they then got a different outcome. And this adversity score seems to be a way to really try to get around that whole system of when you make your choices, you get certain outcomes. And I think that it's entirely possible that a privileged student and a non-privileged student could actually make the same choices and perhaps a privileged one would end up on top just because of the, the higher access to resources or whatever it may be. I think that's a completely viable situation. The adversity score, however, I would say is not a way to solve this problem. So I think there, there is a problem here and no system is perfect. I mean, I think that's pretty evident as well, but I think this is a very bad way to solve it. I see a perverse incentive here. I think you're right. There's a very big perverse incentive, and uh, we've already mentioned some of that. So, ago. yeah. What What do you think are some of the problematic parts of this program? What could you like break it down? Tell us why Why does this not work? Where are the false assumptions? Well, I think the first of those is that you already mentioned part of this, that we're talking about things that are not really quantifiable in numbers as if they could be mathematically measured, as if we can really define just how much advantage you have over someone else, as if there was a baseline where every person should have a minimal level of, ad of advantage and you're either plus or minus that position. And this is literally the mathematical framework of the scale, where we have a 100-point scale, 50 is the midpoint, and everybody is kind of on this position of advantage or disadvantage. And yet we're talking about things that are really, that are much more relational rather than they, they're qualitative rather than quantitative. Maybe quantifying these things even downplays some of the, the aspects of hardship or discrimination, whatever it is that these students are going through because putting a number on it, it may not be exactly overvaluing it, but it could be undervaluing it as well. That's entirely possible. I, I think one of the even bigger problems though, I mean, I can, I, I've, as I've gotten older, I've come to have a greater appreciation for measuring things. There's value there, but I still think this entire system is wide open for abuse. I've been talking to folks about this today and they keep, everybody I mentioned this to has a different way they could abuse this system. What if we move to Detroit and buy a house in inner city Detroit right next to gang territory? Uh, what if my parents get divorced and that actually sets me up for going to college? What if, I get, what if one of my siblings gets hooked on hard drugs and I can then say that I have a family member with drug abuse problems and that's going to help me get into college? Do you think people will do these things? Well, yes and no. Okay. I think in, in, in an ideal sense, I think surely no person would actually want their family members to go through these horrible circumstances purely to get into college. At the same time, I think we could do a brief jog down economic history, which we're not going to. We're just going to mention that we could. Let's not. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but And see that really perverse incentives are real. People do what they are incentivized to do. So mm -hmm. if you accidentally incentivize bad behavior... Well, then people are going to chase the benefit that they get from that bad behavior. So I don't think it would be a mainstream thing, but I think there certainly are people who would say, wow, uh, yeah, okay, we're going, in order to get our kids into college, we're going to leave our nice upscale suburban home and we're going to move into inner city, some, maybe inner city Philadelphia, inner city Manhattan, inner city somewhere, and we're going to buy a place so that we can say, look, we do live in this disadvantaged place and score, have a higher adversity score. Okay, so what else? This, this is almost also making an objective process pretty subjective, right? Because before the SAT was a standard test that everybody would get the SAT 
and show your basic academic ability with that test, but now there's also a second metric attached to this SAT. What do you think of that? Well, I think that really is the heart of this, that we've taken something that, whether it actually is or not, might be a different question, but certainly what everybody thinks of as an objective measurement of academic ability. What uh, one student today called smartness. Smartness. It, it, it's not really an IQ test, but it really does function as a way of right. measuring nationwide, how am I doing? Am I in the... 10th percentile, the 99th percentile, where am I? And you can read, you can do math, you know, like employers want that, colleges want that. If you can't read or do math, you may not be fit for certain colleges, right? Right, right. And, and really it shows, it, it, it's thought at least to provide that baseline and that baseline comparison. But this uh, adversity score really seems to problematize that whole idea that we actually have a baseline objective metric. Instead, as you said a moment ago, it becomes subjective. And it really changes the way that college admissions personnel are going to look at applications. Where suddenly, where what we would like to think of as being straightforward and about colleges finding the best people for their colleges, really now brings in elements of compassion, of uh, human interest, and of looking at, well, what about this story? This person who has all of these factors about their life, well, now that SAT score doesn't seem to matter quite so much. Yeah, I would agree with everything you've said so far. And I just, I can't wait to see how this plays out either. This is, when we actually have hard data for different economic trends that follow or SAT, you know, academic trends in the, the college admissions world, it, I think it's going to flip the script somehow. I can see it flipping the script. I, I think you're right, and I think part of what's going on and part of why this seems to hit people so hard is that they have this idea of the SAT and presumably the ACT as well as really this objective measurement. But in reality, this is taking, this is only showing what the College Board has been up to for a long time. And personally, I can, I'm a little bit upset at this because Unfortunately, I did not meet the threshold, or, like, or I, I guess I have met the threshold. If I were a year older, I wouldn't have had to deal with this, right? And my SAT would not have an adversity score attached to it. But because I'm a sophomore, I will be one of the first people to have to deal with this problem, and it's almost guaranteed to put me at a disadvantage when it comes to college admission. So now, rather than everything I've worked for throughout my entire academic career, showing, showing my ability, it'll still show my ability, but then there's going to be that blot on my on my record, or I guess my academic record, with that, along with that SAT score saying, well, he had some help, and well, it wasn't that hard. Well, he didn't come from you know this background or this situation, and I think that's gonna play into my college admissions process well. And, as well. and just so we're clear, I've, I've met both of your parents. They are responsible people. Both of them have good jobs, and they work very hard to provide for you and your sister. And they both, they, they, have, they have good housing, and they're, resp again, responsible adults. And suddenly their responsibility is not going to really help you. It becomes almost a liability on me. It makes me look bad. Which is yet another perverse incentive. Right. Rather than, in, rather than encouraging parents to really uh, do the natural impulse and provide for their children and help their children begin life at a higher position than the parents began life, where we see kind of a natural progression, this really says actually... I'm sorry, parents, you really messed up your kids' college chances by working hard, buying a house, saving for college, and, and now might not get in because this adversity score changes the equation. Yeah, I, I just think this is crazy. I can't, I, again, 
I just want to see how this plays out in, on my SAT score. Well, yeah, and you know, part of this too might, might be helped by looking back at some of the history of the SAT. Um, Ethan, can, do you know what the SAT originally stood for, what that acronym meant? It was standardized aptitude test, right? Was that it? I think the scholastic, scholastic aptitude right, test. Scholastic aptitude test. Yeah, the, the SAT gets its start in the early 1900s, and all the way up until 1993, it was the scholastic aptitude test. And then what happened? Well, by that point, uh, it turns out a lot of people began attacking the college board for saying, oh, you're being kind of snooty. You're trying to measure something that can't really be measured. You're being measured, you're measuring who's good at scholastic things, being a student. Well, so in 1993, uh, the College Board renamed their test and split them into two groups. You have the new test, it's called SAT-1, the reasoning test. Well, on this, and then you have SAT-2, the subject test. The SAT-2 test still maintained the old name, the Scholastic Aptitude Test. The first one, which is the one everybody takes, does not actually mean anything. It just means SAT-1. They removed the meaning there and so there is no meaning. So SAT has no, the letters there are not an acronym. They just mean nothing. Exactly. Wow. So that's just weird. Which says to me that the College Board has for quite a while been moving away from what people think they're doing. People hmm. think they are t having students take a test that will show to the world, haha, you have learned what you were supposed to learn and you're ready for the next step. When in reality, that's not what's actually going on. And one of the most interesting things here is, is first of all, this adversity score being so no, new, we don't really have any data to go off of. But remember, there was that study at the beginning. I think it was, you said 50 schools, was it? Yeah, 50, 50 schools, schools that it, this was, the experiment was conducted. Right. And yeah. I was wondering what kind of effects would this actually have? Because it's, it's hard to determine to what degree your, um, your adversity score will weigh next to your SAT score, right? But there were actually some numbers near the end of the article that kind of went along with that quote that you were saying about how it's a way to get to race without using race as far as affirmative action is concerned. And it said that um, at Florida State University, the adversity scores helped the school boost non-white enrollment from 42%, sorry, to 42% from 37%. So we see a 5% um, difference there. And that's again, that's only at one school with 50 schools as a sample size, so take it for what you will. But we well, but, do see no. things changing because of this adversity score. We do, and the, the source of that quote there is a guy named John Barnhill, the Assistant Vice President for Academic Affairs at Florida State. And I think it's worth noting that even though uh, this is not technically about race, notice what John Barnhill is focusing on. Race. He's focusing on the non-white students and how they have more of those now. It, it really is, this is going to be a race card kind of approach. Again, if, if they don't say, if they say it's not focusing on race, even if they don't intend for it to focus on race, the, the objective reality seems to be, based on those facts that we can see from uh, the sample size, uh, the 50 colleges in the sample, it, it is trending towards focusing on race, even if that wasn't the intention. Now, earlier in the article, there was a, there's an inter, there's a man named John Conroy, the director of college counseling at New Trier High School, uh, a, uh, a school that, uh, in Chicago. Uh, he had a very interesting quote, uh, and uh, this is what he says. My emails are inundated with admissions officers who want to talk to our diversity kids. Do I feel minority students have been discriminated against? Yes, I do. But I see the reversal of it happening right now in the quote. I think that I'm closer to his opinion um, than most people that were writing in this article, or that were quoted in this article, just because, again, there there is a problem because the system is broken, just as every system is, but as he said, 
but I see the reversal of it happening now that's pulling on that perverse incentive idea and that mm -hmm. this is not the way to solve that problem. Even if they're, we're not sure what the way to solve the problem is, this is, this is doing just as much harm on the other side of the spectrum. I agree with you, and I, I should probably mention that uh, I am a beneficiary in two different ways, I think, of uh, different levels of people trying to open college up. Uh, my dad was the first one in his family to go to college, and he was from a very poor economic uh, position in rural Alabama and Tennessee, and he was able to go to college because of the Pell Grant system. And that really was substantially changing for our family. We, we, that really put us in a totally different position. My wife went to graduate school uh, free of charge with a stipend that was incredibly helpful to us in the first year of our marriage because there was an intentional effort by the University of North Carolina at Greensboro to racially diversify people in the field of library science. And she's Hispanic, so that, that counted there, and it was really helpful for us. So I think, the, I think it's important that we, as we've tried to emphasize on the show, neither of us are saying college needs to be cut off to poor people or to other ethnicities, but rather this is a really bad way to do it. Right, like there are ways to help people, or, or to help both sides of the spectrum, I'm sure, but it seems like no one's come up with a good solution yet. Well, I think it's probably also worth noting that the College Board made an interesting employment decision. Uh, they hired a man named David Coleman to be the CEO, and David Coleman is rather famous in educational circles as the founder of the Common Core program. I don't know, Ethan, if you're familiar with Common Core. I hear the word com or the words Common Core a lot. Is that like a way of doing math or like a method or a curriculum? Sort of. Sort it's of a curriculum method. Curriculum, it's a particular okay. series of curriculum pieces that was approved by the U.S. federal government. And nationwide, the U.S. public schools retooled over a series of years to use Common Core. And the idea, I think, still makes a ton of sense to me. Everybody should study the same basic methodologies and basic text, and then they should pass a set of tests that demonstrate proficiency before they move on. That much is relatively sound pedagogy. In practice, uh, I've talked to a bunch of teachers who actually had to teach under Common Core, and universally they hated it. Because wow. what it actually worked out as was the U.S. federal government dictated the curriculum, and it dictated the testing schedule. Now, I know you think we test and quiz you guys a lot here at Thales, and, and it's true. We do. We, we do a decent we amount. We have a of lot of tests and quizzes. We do. Yeah. But the Common Core system was administering tests and quizzes about every three to five days. That's not a lot. Well, every three to five days in each class. In each class. In each class. Oh, and okay. such that the consistent complaint that I've heard from teachers was not about what they were teaching. It's about how quickly they were forced to assess. Oh, and then they would move on to a different topic and not get good understanding in each Exactly. Okay. And you really didn't have enough time to teach enough to justify another test. So the teachers are always testing. Well, that system was developed in part and at least overseen the implementation by David Coleman. So him being really the, he's now the college board CEO, which says to me he has a track record of having interesting ideas with terrible execution. Interesting ideas that don't work. Uh, and that's, that's really where we are. I can see are. his face on some sort of really academically oriented meme already. Because like, <laughs> if it's him for the adversity score and for Common Core, he's becoming the face of these new academic ideas. You know what I mean? Well, that, that's certainly a possibility. Now, it's, uh, I know earlier today we were both thinking about trust and monopolies for the public forum right. deal. I, I think there's a way in which this might be the movement of the College Board to try to create an educational monopoly. I can completely see that because they already have a monopoly over the standardized testing industry. And it's, it's interesting because there's, no other, there's literally no other path. And monopolies 
are outlawed in this country, right? Like you cannot have a monopoly, or you're. I think it's you'll be forced to sell some of your company, right? right? And if the, you have a monopoly. the trouble is, it's it's really hard to prove a monopoly, which is something we'll have I'm to sure, get into on the next. One, I'm sure next if show. one person is selling the same thing you are, then you technically don't have a monopoly. Exactly. You have market share, right? Well, and in that sense, uh, Ethan, is there? Well, let's 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 get to our last bit then, because we're okay. coming up on time. What's is there a solution? Is there a way to communicate to the college board that this really does not work? I think, honestly, I think even when the data comes in, they're going to find some way to interpret that to the way that it, that it's working. Maybe this can't be a monopoly anymore. That's all I'm thinking. And I know there is an alternative that we're, you'll probably get to when I'm done saying this, nope. but. Um, I don't think the education industry, or at least the standardized testing industry, should be monopolized in this way. I think it's good to have a standardized test, and there shouldn't be you know, millions of different tests you could take. I think the SAT, the ACT, and especially a diversity score could be improved, and that these could do better at determining where students are, and there could be changes made there. And I don't know exactly what those would be, but the adversity score is not the way to go as far as disadvantage versus advantage, and merit should be the central mechanism for choosing students to go to colleges in this way and um, I don't know I think it's just going to be interesting to see where it goes and the monopoly aspect is really scaring me because now we have Common Core and the College Board completely put together under the same person with the same bad ideas what could go wrong well fortunately at Common Core has really been phasing out so we don't want to we don't want to overplay Common Core but yeah you know I, I'd, I'd offer two thoughts there. Um, the first, before we get to an alternative to This is like the exciting board. pitch at the end. Right? There we I go. Yeah. But before we get to that exciting pitch, um, I, I would contend that we ought to think about the college board as a business. And the college board is trying to make money. They make money through AP courses because the college board also oversees AP courses, AP exams, AP oh, credits. They have everything. Oh yeah, so uh, when you take your AP class next year, you can thank the College Board for, for that. that. That's their product. Even if it's taught by teachers at this school? Oh yeah, because the way the College Board works is they set forth this exam. They've gotten many, school, many colleges to accept a certain score on their exam as equivalent to three credits at their college. So when you take AP Calculus and or AP Physics uh, in, in junior or senior year, uh, if you score a four or five, that's going to count as college credit. That's the college board's offer. That's the product that they're serving. Well, in this case, the college board has made a change to the product. And we ought to respond to that change like intelligent consumers. And we really, you can talk to a company all day long. They won't listen. What they will listen to, though, is customers who vote with their dollars. So really the option here is uh, protest the college board, not by picketing their building or doing anything like that, but rather uh, don't take the SAT if the adversity score is something that is going to be applied to your score without your consent. And under the current system, that's exactly how this works. The adversity score is sent to the school and you get no control over that. That's the part that scares me the most. Because you don't even get to see it. You don't get either. to see it. You have no idea how that affects your college admissions process. You can't call the school and say, hey, I really think my adversity score, score was messed up, and I think that impacted my, uh, my, my results and my application. You can't do that if you don't have the information. So as long as that's the system, the best students that colleges want and the ones who have the money to pay for college that colleges also really want they should not take the SAT. They should boycott this program by saying this is an unjust system. And if enough people do that, then really the college board will have to either change what they're doing 
or close shop. So what other alternatives do we have for the present? Because you have to signify to colleges in some way that, that you're able to take a test and you know, have standardized skills. What do you think? Well, I think the, uh, there's an organization I've become more familiar with over the last two years. It's called the Classic Learning Test. They are trying to break the monopoly that the college board has. And uh, as of uh, to date, they have over, I think their number is up to 200 colleges that will accept their exam as an admissions exam. And they're reaching almost 100 schools, I believe. I haven't looked at their website in a couple weeks. But I think it's almost 100 schools that will actually take theirs in place of the SAT or ACT. Wow. Now, there's a couple things to know about that. Uh, the classic learning test begins with a f few really interesting assumptions. They actually, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, teach to the test or don't teach to the test. Yes. Well, see, the classic learning test says, yes, you actually should teach to the test. Because what happens is that everyone really does teach to the test. And right now, what's happening is that the college board then gets an extreme amount of control over what students study, how they prepare for the test. The classic learning test says, well, you know what? That's how people actually work. They do study for test. What if we then have them study real writing and real math and real logic that they really use in the real world and actually resembles uh, what they study in school? Now, because most of your time in school, you read real writing. You don't sit around all day for fun reading scientific reports. Right. But over 90% of the reading sections on the SAT and ACT are from science articles. Hmm. Does not fit what people actually spend their time studying in school. I agree. So the classic learning test also uh, on the math side of things, they want to know what you can actually do so you don't get a calculator. Oh. And Well, the, I mean, I, I agree with that too. I mean, that, that, that's the thing. So uh, I think the classic learning test is a much better demonstration to colleges what do you actually know? And more importantly, what can you do with what you know? It's all about demonstrating your knowledge. It's also on the cutting edge of the technological platforms. It's administered in two hours. It's all done online over computers or iPads. It's got a standard, it's got all the right standard testing metrics involved. Uh, I had to read a 96 page report on the construction of their test. Uh, we're, I'm happy to link that in the show notes when we put those up on our uh, new website. Right, new website. Forgot to mention that. Coming soon at whatstheres.com. Whatstheres.com. That's what it'll be. All right. Uh, well, listeners, we'll have that live uh, hopefully by May 17th. So if you're listening to us right. after May 17th, check us out at whatstheres.com. So all that to say, the classic learning test shows us that, there, that as good consumers in a capitalist economy, in a free market economy, we have options. Now, like any good business, the college board does not want you to go to their competitor. They don't want you to know about their competitor. They would be happy for you to hear this news of the adversity score thing. Oh, well, okay, I guess I don't really have any choice. I have to take the SAT. SAT. Now, of course, you could take the ACT, but that's also owned by the college board. So I suspect we will see in months soon to come that this will also apply to people taking the ACT. Maybe this, this is like a short term out, right? You can take the ACT. And personally, I find the ACT so much harder than the SAT. We took it in Mr. Bonin's college admissions class, and I finished, there was one section 40 questions long, and I finished 30 in the uh, amount of time. I literally could not get to the last 10. And it is, science, it's, from what I found, it's more scientifically oriented, so you have to read a lot more charts and, and things like that. 
and that was very difficult for me. So I do not want to take the ACT. I would well, like to try out the CLT, Classical Learning Test. And uh, just as uh, to note, uh, you remember there was a moment today where nine students, uh, most of them were in your class, were called to uh, Dr. Edwards' office. For merit-based recognition on CLT. Correct? That's right. The uh, Thales Academy had nine students who hit the were the highest performing students in that category nationwide. So we actually yeah. are now a national leader for the Classical Learning Test. And one of my really good friends actually scored one point below the top national score. He had a 114 on the CLT. I was very proud. Out of, I think the total score is 120 possible? I think it's 120. It could 120, be 130, yeah. but I think it's 120. I believe it's 120. Yeah. So. Uh, listeners, all that to say, uh, the classic learning test is well worth your being aware of. It's well worth knowing that there is an alternative out there. The classic learning test is not interested really in uh, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic background. That, that's not what their game is. Their game is about asking you, how do you actually measure up on a standardized learning test that is asking the time-honored questions? Do you know how to read? Can you think about what you read? Do you know how to do math? Can you apply your mathematical, mathematical reasoning? Can you use logic effectively? Those are the questions, and those questions allow for a really clear picture to colleges of your educational preparation for academic study. Sounds good to me. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, here at What's the Res, we at least believe that college is a place for advanced study, and a standardized test is an important piece of the process. And it, it, it creates an academic benchmark that shows who is and who is not prepared for advanced study. Uh, we think this adversity scorecard shows that creating this benchmark is no longer the college board's goal. And to the extent that the adversity scorecard allows students who are unprepared for college to replace those who are prepared for college, it actively harms the value of the SAT. Completely agreed, once again. All right. Well, thank you for listening today, ladies and gentlemen. You've been listening to a bonus episode of What's the Res, an ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. This is a bonus episode focusing on the new adversity scorecard from the College Board. Uh, Ethan, if our, any of our listeners want to give us feedback, hate mail, uh, rail on us for anything we've said, how can they get in touch we'll with take us? take it all. What's the rest, listeners? If you would like to give us feedback or hate mail or anything related to that, please do email us at whatstherez at gmail.com. That's W-H-A-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-S at gmail.com. Especially on this topic, we would love to hear back from you and just get your input and your insight as to what this adversity score program is going to do. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at what's the res underscore. And when this new website is ready at what's the res.com. It's going to be a really cool website. Join us next time, ladies and gentlemen, for a, an NSDA nationals episode focusing on the public forum resolution. And until then, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.